Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Scott Hahn, Father Scanlon Chair of Biblical Theology at Franciscan University of Steubenville, giving a talk entitled, Understanding Our Father, The Power of the Seven Petitions, Part 1. Dr. Hahn's talk was part of the Student Leadership Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. When I was thinking about what to speak on for the Center for Leadership, what struck me immediately just continued to grow, and that was on the importance of prayer, on how it really needs to start for us, for us being faithful followers of Jesus, faithful disciples of Christ, before we try to be fruitful apostles, before we try to lead anybody, we really have to allow our Lord to lead us. And I think the more effective we become as faithful followers, the more fruitful we are going to be as apostles and leaders. And so I'd like to begin by sort of outlining the presentation for this evening and then tomorrow morning as well. I'm going to be speaking on the Our Father the Lord's Prayer, and the power of these seven petitions. I'm going to focus upon the first three this evening and then the last four tomorrow. And I hope you're not sitting there fighting a little sense of disappointment because after all, I mean, don't we already pray that prayer too much as it is? I don't think so. But I do think we ponder it too little. And so the more we contemplate something that we might regard wrongly as commonplace, I think we're going to discover that what we have is really a sort of spiritual diamond. The prayer at hand has been called many things, the paternoster, and I want to give a shout out to the household for which I am the faculty advisor. I was wearing my paternoster hoodie just one hour ago at the household mass. <laughs> it's called the Lord's Prayer also, of course, except that the Lord wouldn't be able to pray it since he didn't commit trespasses that needed to be forgiven. It's also called the model prayer. Well, whatever we call it, I prefer personally the disciples' prayer. One thing is for certain, it's a prayer of paramount importance. And in fact, it is the most famous prayer, and it comes at the very center of the most famous sermon ever preached. And what is that? The Sermon on the Mount. The very first of the five discourses that Jesus gives us in Matthew's Gospel. And I think it it's good for us just to stop for a moment, take a step back and look at how it comes precisely at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Because when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, it begins in chapter five, it runs through six and it ends in chapter seven. No typical homily there, it reads about a half hour long. But what you find in the Sermon on the Mount is something that we may be tempted to take for granted, but the Jewish disciples who were following Jesus would not have taken it for granted. And what is it? Well, it's God being referred to as Father. I mean, for us, that's like, you know, wallpaper. That's like white noise. That's just so much background. But if you look at the Hebrew Bible that Jesus came to fulfill, the law and the prophets and the writings, according to the most common count by ancient rabbis, God is addressed as Father in the Hebrew Bible approximately 11 times. In contrast, Jesus refers to God as Father in this sermon 17 times. 
So in his very first sermon, he speaks of God as Father more than you will find in the entire Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. That's startling. But I would also suggest then that here at the center of the Sermon on the Mount, those words that we know so well and pray so much but ponder so little should sort of be allowed to jump out, and that is our Father. We're going to look at that in just a moment. But I also want to look for a moment at where it's found in Luke's Gospel. Because when you turn to the Gospel of Luke, you find in chapter 11 where it is that Jesus is giving these disciples this prayer. Along with the Sermon on the Mount, he also gave it to them privately. In fact, it was right after he pulled an all-nighter. Not for a midterm or a paper, but he just did something that he had done on many occasions. He spent the entire night alone with his father in prayer. And when he came back, the disciples saw it. And of course, they recognized that this is really the source of his power, his energy, his vision, his love. And so what did they do? They asked him to teach them to pray. <coughs> now, he just was up all night. Guys, give him a break. At least give him breakfast. <laughs> teach us to pray. Now, you know, Jesus in Luke 11 then suddenly responds to this unexpected request by saying, pray like this. And you're almost tempted to think that this is an ad hoc response to a sort of unexpected question. And then like, um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, did he really know that they were going to ask him to teach them to pray? Oh, I think so. In fact, I think their request Asking him to teach them how to pray was probably God the Father's answer to much of the prayer that he had offered to him all night long. Because he was praying for his disciples. Not just the 12, but for all of us as well, but especially them, because at that moment, they were the ones to whom he would entrust it all. And afterwards, to their successors, and so on. And so you cannot be like Christ unless you learn how to pray as he does. And what they learned that morning was that he prays like nobody else, and he wanted them to pray like not even the most devout rabbi ever dared to do. And again, I want to just kind of step back and relate this, because on the one hand, I think we're so accustomed to hearing about the fatherhood of God that we've got to allow ourselves to sort of be amazed once again at what would have been so amazing back then. And it should be amazing even today. I remember back in my own college days, one summer, I worked for the Teamsters one summer. Then the following summer, I worked in the inner city with five ex-Black Panthers who had all experienced the grace of conversion. And we were in the inner city of Pittsburgh on the north side. I was the only Caucasian for about two square miles. <laughs> We were working with about 150 teenagers, but we were going through a rigorous training because this guy named Bobby, who stood about 6'5 or 6'6 from Boston, he'd been the leader of the gang up there before his conversion. He came to Pittsburgh because he was a marked man up there. His conversion had not gone over well. So he wanted to pour his life into these kids, but he wanted to train us first, and especially the Caucasian from the suburbs. So the very first day of training, he made a point of saying that when it comes to sharing the faith, when it comes to talking about God, one thing we don't do in the inner city is to re refer to him as father. 
and he saw me cock my head like, what? And he went on to explain why. And I could tell he was doing it for my sake. He said, because I've looked over the roster of these 100 plus kids, they're about 150. And he said, there are three of them who live in a home where their mother and father still share that home. And one of them's the brother and the other two are sisters. Nobody else, including me. I didn't know my father. And so we don't want to get off to a bad start. Well, he went on, and I was just really wondering about that. Later on, at the end of the day, when we went back to the apartment and shared dinner, I don't think I surprised him when I raised the question, are you sure we shouldn't refer to God as Father? And he's like, didn't you hear me? And I said, I did, but I'm just wondering whether or not this might be the last chance these kids ever get to kind of rehabilitate the notion of father after so many fathers have failed them. And he looked at me and he rolled his eyes. And I said, don't get me wrong, I understand I have things that others don't, including you. But I also have a father who has lots of faults. And I've come to the conclusion that God gives us fathers so that we can come to know him for who he is. But he gives us fathers who fail so that we'll never settle for anything less than the best, the only perfect father. And he looked rather impatient. He said, are you done? Um, I guess so. And then we just let the conversation shift over to the pirates. <laughs> Later on, the very next day, when we had our second training session, begin in the morning, he got up and much to my shock, he said in the opening, I wanna reverse myself. I wanna make a suggestion that we try something new that we actually take the risk of referring to God as Father precisely because these kids don't know what fatherhood means and this might be the last chance they get. <laughs> and he looked at me and he gave me a wink. <laughs> I never expected that. But within about two months, both of us were reflecting back on the frustrations and the failings of our own fathers, but also what it means to come to know God as Father, and that true love that is in Him perfect. Because in God, fatherhood is not a figure of speech. It is an eternal fact. It isn't a metaphor that we kind of make up and project onto the divinity to kind of domesticate this otherwise inscrutable deity to make Him feel a little more approachable. He's more of a father than I'll ever be to my own six kids. It isn't a figure of speech, it is an article of faith, it is an eternal fact, and we've got to come to grips, not only with the novelty that Jesus introduced, but with the radical power that it can unleash in our own lives if we really allow God to be something more than our employer, more than our judge, more than our lawgiver, you know, more than a coach, but someone who loves us more than we love ourselves, someone who knows us far better than we'll ever know ourselves and so consequently, someone who legislates laws that don't constrain, but empower and liberate. A God who allows things to happen that we wouldn't even wish upon our enemies, but not in spite of his love for us, but precisely because he loves us in a way that we can't imagine, and we've just got to extend to him a line of credit, probably longer than what the bank has given to you and your parents. We really have got to understand how reliable he is. One other experience that I had years ago before 9-11, I was scheduled to debate a Muslim scholar at Penn State. 
on the subject of the Trinity. I had initially turned down the invitation, but it came from my brother-in-law, and my sister got on the phone and basically changed my mind. <laughs> it was over a year away, and I forgot about it, and about six months later, we were out there visiting her and the family when, in the middle of dinner, Bill came home late, and he sat down and said, you'll never guess who I ran into, a fellow who's passing through town, and he mentioned this long Arabic name, and I didn't have a clue who he was talking about. Oh, he's the one you'll be debating in about seven months. And I'm like, I forgot about that. Thanks for the reminder, you know, some vacation. So he said, then we've scheduled a breakfast. I hope you don't mind, but I took the liberty of scheduling a time tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. so that we could talk about this. And he hadn't even asked, you know. So we got up, we went down, and we said a prayer in his little orange Honda Civic. We walked in, it was empty. The waitress came over and we ordered coffee. We waited about four minutes and I said, clearly he has no intention of coming. Let's just drink and pay and leave. And then a moment later, he walked in. This tall, dark fellow wearing a turban. We stood up, we shook hands, we sat down and we exchanged greetings and pleasantries, but it wasn't really two minutes before he was diving right into the subject matter because it was his occupation to travel around the country going to campuses to debate Christian scholars on this subject. And so he wanted to talk about it. And so I engaged him, but in the, in the very beginning of our conversation, I referred to God as Father, and I didn't finish the sentence, and he pounded his fist down on the table, and he interrupted me. And I didn't know why. He said, do not blaspheme in my presence. And I'm thinking, have I suddenly contracted Tourette's syndrome? I didn't think I had, you know? <laughs> And he said, you called God Father. Fatherhood is human, not divine. It's finite and earthly. It's not infinite and heavenly. When you attribute to God the things that are creaturely, that is blasphemous. All right, well, I didn't want to get him upset anymore, so we changed subjects. And I brought up Jesus. And about two or three minutes later, I referred to him as the Son of God. And I didn't finish that sentence either. Down came his fist even harder and louder, at which point the waitresses are looking at me like, I have a problem. <laughs> what now? And he said, sonship is like fatherhood. It's not divine, it's human, it's not eternal, it's temporal. That is blasphemy, and I won't tolerate it. And I'm sitting there thinking, wondering, how are we going to debate the Trinity in public if I can't refer to God as father or son? But I wasn't about to ask him. <laughs> Instead, I figured it was time to find some common ground, and so I said, well, let's just take a step back and look at how we might look at this together because as a matter of principle, we often apply analogy in our divine discourse when it comes to God. You do it in Islam and we do it in Christianity. For example, we would affirm together that God is all-powerful, that he is omnipotent, that we have power too, but it's limited, it's finite, and he nodded. And I said, furthermore, we would also agree that God is omniscient, that he's all-knowing, that Allah is omniscient and that we have knowledge, but it likewise is finite and limited, and he agreed. And I said, well, a third principle, that he is omnibenevolent, that he is all good, he is all merciful, that's one of the 99 titles that you ascribe to Allah. And so he is all powerful, he is all knowing, he is all good, he is all merciful, and he loves. And I said, why not just bundle these attributes together and put them under the label Father? And he was staring intently back at me when he said, because Allah doesn't love as a father. And he could tell I wasn't really tracking him. And so he said, let me illustrate. And he went on to explain that he was just finishing up a program 
at Temple University in Philadelphia where he had gotten his PhD. I congratulated him, I just got mine. But he said, I'm going off for a postdoctoral fellowship at the State University of New York, SUNY Buffalo, I think he said. I'm like, that's great. But I didn't see the point. And he went on to explain that where he lived in Philly, he leased an apartment and had a pet, a dog. And he loved his dog, but he had just signed a lease in this other town up in New York that allowed no pets. Nobody he knew would take his dog. And he said, this dog I love, it looks like I may have to kill. And at first I thought he was kidding. And so I'm like, you know, with love like that, who needs hate? <laughs> Didn't strike him as amusing for a moment. And I'm like swallowing hard, trying to take this in. And I'm like, okay, so he doesn't love as a father. And so the conversation at that point was bogged down. It was kind of limping badly. And I tried my best to continue it. And about two or three minutes later, I said something else. And to this day, neither Bill or I remember what it was. But this time, the fist came down even louder. Only he stood up and he said, once, I've asked you twice, but not a third time. And I'm like, what? And he just stormed out of the restaurant. You know, at this point, the waitress is coming over in an awkward, are you ready to order? Well, we had lost our appetite, you know, <laughs> as well as our guest. And so we paid for the coffee. We walked out into the parking lot, sat in his car, stunned silence for about five minutes. When suddenly my brother-in-law looked at me, and he's a Baptist minister, and he said, I don't think I've ever appreciated before what it means to be able to say, our Father who art in heaven. And I said, and I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. And he said, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And he started up the car and he drove us home, you know. I'll be honest, I was not even slightly disappointed in less than a week when he got a call from this scholar because he wanted to cancel the debate because I wasn't going to be using abstract philosophical language that is academic. I was going to use all of this personalistic language from the family, and he didn't think that would be fair. Well, I didn't utter a protest because I wasn't looking forward to it much, but I gotta tell you, sometimes it takes an outsider to help insiders reach an awareness of what we have taken for granted practically all of our lives, because he wasn't in any way betraying his religion. Islam, as you study it from Muslims, is quite literally a religion of divine slavery. Allah is not a father, he's a master. We are not his children, we are his slaves. Islam means submission. And you tend to become like the one you worship. Only we worship not Allah, but Abba. Only Jesus introduced a way of relating to God that was unheard of before. He didn't just come to fulfill the old covenant, his fulfillment of the old surpassed the highest expectations, the holiest hopes, the wildest dreams of the holiest Jews. 11 times in the Hebrew Bible, 17 times in his first sermon, and over 170 references to God as Father in the Gospels, and he never addresses God in any other terms. Even though before Jesus, the devout rabbis never dared to address the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as Father. He's the God of our fathers, but he's not our father God. The Lord is my shepherd, but we are his sheep. Not until the shepherd becomes the lamb of God do we enter into covenantal solidarity that would enable us to dare to pray our father who art in heaven. 
That's just the opening line. We haven't even gotten to the first three petitions. <laughs> but I'll tell you this, that if we really grasp the inner logic of divine love locked up in those two words, our Father, we could practically deduce all of the seven petitions in their proper sequence because they're all contained in what it means to discover in an ongoing way that God is not Allah, a master, and we are not his servants, his employees, and his slaves. We are his beloved children. That doesn't mean that we don't serve him. That doesn't mean Paul would never refer to himself as the doulos, as the servant, as the slave of the Lord, of Jesus Christ. Jesus was himself the eternal son who becomes the suffering servant, and why? Because love inspires more than law requires. And not until the sons of the divine father outserve the mere slaves will we really awaken to the greatness of the glory of God the Father that he lavishes on us. He wants to give us more than we dare to ask him. And all he asks us to do is increase our faith. And he will, probably more than we can imagine. So this is the most perfect of prayers. As the Catechism says in paragraph 2763, the Lord's Prayer is the most perfect of prayers, for in it we ask not only for all the things that we can rightly desire, but also in the sequence that they should be desired. This prayer teaches us not only to ask for things, but also in what order we should desire them. How interesting, because when you look at the seven petitions, you notice a twofold division in the sequence of seven. The first three petitions all deal with thy name, thy kingdom, and thy will. The last four are give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. So the first three are Godward, the last four are usward. You could already get a sense that Jesus is trying to get us to reverse the pattern of our typical prayer life. Because so often we wait until we're in such distress to cry out to God and we are so focused on our afflictions and our weaknesses, we don't see the face of a father who has willed this because he wants for us more than we want for ourselves. So we have to look carefully at the, not only the sequence, but the inner logic of love that ties these petitions together. Our Father. Notice that as we begin this prayer, it isn't our Lord, our God, our lawgiver, our judge. He's all of those things and more, but he is those things because he's our Father. Notice the creed. I, be, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. All of his power is paternal. All of his knowledge is harnessed for our holiness. We have got to admit to God and to ourselves how often we trust him so little. Our Father. And notice it's not just our Father, but it's our Father. It's a family prayer. If God is our Father, then we are his family. We aren't just his flock. He cares for us in a way that no parents ever could care for their kids. And he wants us to believe that and trust him. So if God is our Father, then we are his family. But as we hear in the second half of the opening line, our Father who art in heaven. So what does God want to remind us 
If he is our father, then we are his family. But if he is in heaven, then we're not home yet. No matter how much you were looking forward to getting back from Christmas break to Francisco, or no matter how much you were looking forward to getting home at the end of finals, we're not home. No matter what your, you know, your street address is, no matter what your dorm room is, if God is our father, then we are his family. But if he is in heaven, then we're not home. We're pilgrims. We're in exile. This prayer is meant to remind us that he is with us wherever we are, but he is calling us to something much greater than we have experienced thus far. Our Father who art in heaven. God is not separated from us by light years, but he is separated from us by our sins. Heaven is not a measurement of distance. It is a mark of majesty. It is a sign that points to his holiness and to what he wants to make us. So as we begin this prayer, this family prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, we notice the very first of the seven petitions is what? Hallowed be thy name. And let's just be honest. Let's admit it to ourselves. That's strange language. I mean, how many times have you used the word hallowed besides that prayer, say in the last six months? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Maybe Halloween or something, but you know, we don't really use that language, and so we don't really look at it closely to figure out what it is we're praying in the opening petition. Hallowed, of course, comes from the word for holy. So when we're praying, hallowed be thy name, at one level, of course, what we're praying for is for God's name to be holy and for people to sanctify that name. And so that obviously excludes cursing and vulgarity and taking his name in vain and all of that. But when you really look at it more closely, you've got to ask yourself a really simple but profound question. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, are we really asking God to help us to make his name holier than it already is? Are we capable of making it any holier than it already is? I don't think so. So if we're not praying to make God's name holy or holier than it is, what is it exactly that we are praying for? Well, what we're praying for is not to make his name holier than it is. We're asking him to make us holier than we are. And why? Because we bear his name. You know, if you ever have noticed, you know, in... The student body, there's this one guy, he's 6'5", he has this last name, Han, you know? And it's no accident because Joe's number five out of six. You know, and the others have gone through here before him. And it's so much fun to beginning to start my 25th year here at, at Franciscan. It just grows on you, it grows into you. Oh, thank God for this place. But he bears my name because I'm his father. He bears my name because he's my son. And so when we pray, our Father who art in heaven, God is our Father, then we are his family. If he is in heaven, we're not home yet. So what are we asking him to do when we pray, hallowed be thy name? We're saying, we bear your name, we are your children, make us holy, make us saints. How fitting that that should be the very first petition because it's the only reason we were made. It's the only thing that God had in mind. It's not plan B. Well, Adam and Eve fell, what are we gonna do? Oh, that's another way to make them saints. <laughs> I gotta tell you, we gotta trust him more and recognize that he is capable of doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. 
and that is to make us holy. And he starts off by doing that in baptism. Because when we were baptized, we were baptized in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No. We were baptized in the name of the Lord, the lawgiver, and the ju judge. No. We were baptized in the name of, oh yeah, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Language that never entered the liturgy in the Holy of Holies is now on the tongue and in the heart of the lowest lay people because when the Father sent the Son to give us the spirit of sonship so that we might cry, Abba, Father, this is a radical fulfillment that represents a sort of rupture. Again, where the fulfillment exceeds the highest hopes and the wildest dreams, and 2,000 years later, we're yawning. Oh, the Our Father. Lord, have mercy, but also, Father, hallowed be thy name. What are we praying? Well, as the Catechism says, that when we pray, hallowed be thy name, it is not causative, but evaluative. We're not causing God to become holier. We're not making his name any more holy than it already was, but because we bear that name through baptismal rebirth as his beloved sons and daughters, we are beginning this prayer with the very first order of business that we are here to become saints and we are to settle for nothing less. So that if at the end of the semester you end up not getting enough passing grades to come back, I'll be really sorry at one level, but if you're really humbled and grateful for whatever grace has come, or if you run into somebody else like a roommate or a friend who ends up dropping out because it's too expensive and they don't hold down a job, they never go on for a master's or a PhD. They don't write you know, one book, much less 30 or 40. They're not, they're not celebrity. They're not successful. They just kind of stumble through life. But in the end, they become saints. Guess what? Every single moment of their lives, all of the apparent failures are going to suddenly be unveiled as the fulfillment of a fatherly plan to make this person holy because his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Whereas if you see people who graduate the top of their class, straight A's, go on for degrees, become famous, write books, do shows, whatever else they long for, and then they succumb to the pride and the vanity and the vainglory of it all, and believe me, it's tempting. Then everything in my life or yours or in theirs that looks so successful, that looks so amazing, will be an abysmal failure if they fail to obtain the only thing for which God made them, which is the holiness of heaven. How do you define success? Holiness is how God does. And so the very first petition represents the eternal purpose for which we were all made. And notice it's not my father, it's our father. And it is a prayer by which we are praying not just to make me a saint, I mean, that would be a good prayer, but what we're really praying is for all of those who bear the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit to be made holy. Because our help is in what? The name of the Lord. Right? Because you all have names that you got from your parents because you are the family members in that household. And so you know that you have a name and you can call upon that name, you've got their cell phone numbers, you've got access to those who loved you, who gave you life. 
no matter what faults and failings they have, you know what it means to be in a family. You know what it means to have a father. God gives us all fathers so that we can come to know him for who he really is. But he gives us all fathers who fail so that we'll never settle for anything less. That isn't just true for an ex-Black Panther who's found Christ in the inner city. That's true for Franciscan students every bit as much as for Bobby. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, make us saints. It's not a kind of, you know, competition where I'm going to beat you to heaven. I'm going to be holier than you. As Paul says to the Romans, outdo one another in bestowing honor upon one another. Why? Because if you want to be first, you've got to be the servant of all. If you want to be a leader, you've got to become an expert follower. If you want to be a fruitful apostle, then study as a faithful disciple and learn this disciple's prayer until it's carved into your heart. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Notice that it's not just Basileia, kingdom, because, well, back in the first century, they didn't have democracies. They had monarchies, and so they used that kind of dynastic language. No. Our God is our Father, but He is also the King of the universe. And that isn't meant to intimidate us. That is meant to what? Endow us with the royal dignity that we have, not only as beloved children, but as princes and princesses, as kings and queens. That we belong to a divine family, but it is also a royal family. And so we pray, thy kingdom come. And it's significant that it is a kingdom because, you know, you don't generally elect kings, you know. And in this case, of course, election works the opposite way. He elects us, we don't elect him. But when we think about what it means for God to be a king, I think it's also significant because then we recognize why our society struggles so much with our faith, with our religion. Because the idea that there is authority, power, law coming that is not from the consent of the governed, that is not subject to majority vote, that is not subject to recall or to repeal, you know, this just doesn't seem to be proper. It's, un, it's undemocratic. You know, and so it is that people kind of feel as though the laws of God are sort of up for grabs. They're ours to redefine. But I mean, that operates in one level, but in another sphere, I think everybody gets it. You know, we would think it's absurd, for example, if next week we, we read a report in the news about, you know, how both houses of Congress actually passed legislation to repeal the law of gravity, right? And when we heard on Tuesday that the president called them all to the Rose Garden because he was going to actually sign off on the legislation, and then on Wednesday they all decide to celebrate by getting on top of the roof of the White House and jumping off to celebrate the repeal of the law of gravity. I mean, we know what would happen, right? They wouldn't break the law. Gravity would break whatever bones hit the ground first. You know, in the material order, the physical laws are inexorable. They're not up for grabs. They're not really ours to change. It's only in the spiritual realm, with the moral laws, that we think somehow we can change them. But if God is our Father, then we are his family. If he is in heaven, we're not home yet. And if he loves us more than we love ourselves, then his laws aren't meant to constrain us. They're meant to make us saints. 
along with his mercy that is the medicine, the anesthesia by which he treats us when we have failed. Because he doesn't stop loving us when we sin. He doesn't start loving us less. Our goodness is not what causes him to love us. His love is what caused us to come into existence. His love was what has brought us to this present moment, and his love is what's gonna get us all the way home. It isn't because we're good that he loves us, it's because he loves us that we exist and we're good and we may be holy. And when we think this way, we're really countercultural, but at the same time, we're getting in tune with the very fabric of the cosmos. Because the one thing we have on our side is reality, is truth, is objectivity. Because this is our Father's world, and we are his beloved children. And so he prayed all night for his disciples. And when they asked him to pray, that was the answer to his prayer, because he could then teach them to pray like they had never heard anybody pray before, and they in turn would end up teaching us as well. Thy kingdom come. And then we come to thy will be done. Now, I think in some ways, this is the most interesting and possibly the most difficult of the first three petitions because when we pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we kind of hear something that sort of corrects the way we typically find ourselves praying because so often, you know, we're praying about the things that we desire. We're praying about the things that we want. We're praying to get God to do our will, right? I mean, I don't ever, but I heard some people do. I, <laughs> not here on our campus, but. No, of course we find ourselves praying that way. And it isn't like God is, you know, going to respond with anger or contempt with some holy harumph. No way, I'm not your will. <laughs> what do you think you are, my beloved child? Oh yeah, well, you know. <laughs> he wants us to share our desires with him, our fears with him. He really wants us to open up our hearts to him, and I have found that to be true on more than a, one occasion. At the same time, he wants more for us than we want for ourselves. So we have to look at the fact that when we pray, we're not praying to change God's mind. We're not praying to alter his will. Or if you find yourself praying to change his mind or to alter his will, do the rest of us a big favor. Stop praying. <laughs> because after all, whose mind is the more reliable guide? Whose will you know, is the more trustworthy standard? His, not yours, and not even mine. But I think this also kind of points to a deeper issue. You know, does prayer really change things? You know, because isn't God's will going to be done anyway? After all, he's God. And so things just happen the way he orders them. You can read about it in Ephesians 1 and Romans 9 and elsewhere. So, I mean, when we pray, thy will be done, it kind of reminds us, uh-huh, deep down, let's admit it, we're sort of fatalistic, you know, because after all, his will is gonna be done anyway. We're not gonna change his mind, we're not gonna change his will, and there's a certain sense in which we shouldn't be praying to change his mind or change his will, but we shouldn't conclude on the basis of that that prayer doesn't change anything. Because I wanna propose to you, prayer changes everything, except God's mind. 
Because what God does with prayer is to change our minds so that we're thinking his thoughts, to alter and transform our will so that we still have our desires, but deep down we know we ought to desire what he wants more than what we want. And admit with all candor that we don't usually pray that way. But this is how his name is hallowed. This is how we become saints. This is how his kingdom comes. Or to paraphrase Saint Therese of Lisieux, she said, God gives me whatever I want, because I want whatever he gives. There is childlike trust. Little flower in this hour, show thy power. My favorite prayer these days. God gives me whatever I want because I want whatever he gives. I am convinced that we should see that God uses our study, God uses our sports, God uses, you know, our exercise, God uses our conversations, and God also uses our prayer. But when we get to the other side of the veil and we look back on this temporal life from eternity, we'll realize that what we used to say is really silly. Well, I, I'm sorry I can't help. All I can do is pray. You know, if we could do 101 other things besides prayer, I would think that what we'll find is that prayer, if we do it right, like we're taught in this prayer, it's probably going to alter things and affect deeper change than all the other things combined, plus all the other things that combined are gonna be endowed with the capacity to bring God's will to the lives of others precisely because of the prayer. Prayer is what electrifies our actions. Prayer is what energizes our decisions. I remember reading about this famous pastor in South Korea who would pray and fast for days and weeks to reach the people, and the church began to grow. Back in the late 60s and early 70s, there were thousands. Then in the 80s, tens of thousands. Then in the 90s, over 100,000. He had to break it up into several churches. And then Pastor Cho was encouraged to take a sabbatical and to come over to America and see how they were harnessing technology to advance the gospel, and so he did. He spent several weeks on sabbatical, visiting all of these places throughout the US. This ministry, this apostolate, this big mega church, this aircraft carrier fellowship. And at the end, right before he went home, he was interviewed. What have you learned from American Christians? He said, I am amazed at how much they do without prayer. And what he commented on was a kind of leadership in the flesh, a leadership that originates from a kind of executive board decision and action, and not from the, the fasting and from the prayer and the vigils that he was returning home to. I believe that if it's gonna happen, it's gonna start at a place like Franciscan. You know, and to quote President Reagan, you know, if not here, where? If not you, who? And if not now, when? This is the challenge that God has given to us and he's put it on our lips so that we dare to pray a family prayer that seems so humdrum, and yet it's the means by which we are going to become holy. It is the means by which we're going to shock to discover that our faith is rooted in the Father who sent his Son to give us the Spirit to revolutionize world religions and to make us believe things that nobody ever really believed before, that from all eternity, God is not our creator. 
Because creation's not eternal. No matter how old it is, there was a time when it was not, but there was never a time when God was not. So creator doesn't really capture who he is. What does? Father. Because what has he been doing for all eternity? He's been eternally fathering. And what is the result? There's an eternal son who isn't younger than the father. He isn't smaller than the father. He's God from God, light from light, because he is true God from true God. He is not made like creatures. He is begotten. You know, I've begotten six kids with the help of my bride. And none of them look like me. And I've never heard them utter a complaint. <laughs> but suppose I just succumbed to vanity. And, you know, the sacredness of the number seven, I just gave in one day to the impulse to make my seventh child look just like me. And so I got a bronze statue. I, I carved it up and I put it in my backyard and it was my spitting image. Would that be my seventh child? Of course not. Why? Because it's made, not begotten, right? It has metallic nature, not human or Han nature. <laughs> so God is an eternal father who's eternally fathering because father is not just a noun, it's a verb. It's what he does because it's who he is from all eternity. And when you come to know someone in terms of who they are, you come to understand what they're up to. And you'll come to see why it is that the Father sent the Son to give us the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to make us holy, but the Spirit of Sonship so that we would allow the Holy Spirit to reproduce Jesus' own divine Sonship in our thoughts, our words, our deeds, in our bodies and souls, in our own relationship with God, our relationship with others as well, in our desires to see things happen, but in our desires also to see Him do His will. Thy will be done is in so many ways the petition that represents the hinge on which this whole prayer turns, from the first three to the last four. I'm not gonna go there tonight, I'm gonna go there tomorrow, but I wanna tell you, it's only, pray, it's only safe to pray about ourselves after we have acknowledged the need for God's will to be done. And I was reading Cardinal Newman, blessed John Henry Newman, oh, he said, in a moment of real honesty. I have to admit to myself, I don't really live to please God. I find myself living to please myself without displeasing Him too much. And at that moment, he was repenting. Why? Because he wasn't pretending to be something he wasn't. He was acknowledging that he was a sinner, but that God's grace is greater than our sin. And that our capacity to transgress his laws is simply no match for his capacity to sanctify sinners. And that is what he longs to do, even more than to transubstantiate bread and wine into Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. That is not an end in itself, that's a means to an end. The goal that he has in mind by transforming bread and wine into Christ is to transform sinners into saints, to make us members of his body to make us children and his family, and to make us so that we really believe this. We don't just circle true on a midterm. We know it's true, especially when we don't feel it. And we even find ourselves wanting it, even though God wills for us the things that we don't will for ourselves or anybody else. Thy will be done. 
Again, we don't pray to change God's will. We pray for God to change our will, to conform it to his will. Why? Because he's our father. He knows us. He loves us. He desires more for us than what we're willing to settle for ourselves. We could stop here and pray these three petitions for the rest of our lives and unleash such grace that would lead us and many others to glory. This is the key to leadership, following Christ, praying like Christ. But I also want to get back for a moment to the Eucharist because this is where the Our Father becomes our family prayer. I mean, if you pray the rosary like I do every day, we are praying the Our Father frequently, either alone or together in a group if we're praying a rosary with others. But notice whether you pray the rosary or not, the one place all of the people of God pray the Our Father is when? Right after the words of consecration, but right before we receive Holy Communion. And why is that? It's because this is the moment where all of these petitions are going to be fulfilled more than any other time, more than any other place. Why? Because if God is our Father, then he's gathered his family. And here we are. And we're praying for him to make us holy. Hallowed be thy name. We're also praying for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. And what do we add? On earth as it is in heaven. But if you look at the Greek, it's interesting. Because the phraseology is, as it is in heaven, so may it be on earth. As in heaven, so on earth. That's the literal technical translation of this phrase. On earth as it is in heaven. As it is in heaven, so may it be on earth. And what's also interesting about the grammar is that it doesn't just apply to the third petition. The way it's placed is clearly meant to apply to the first three petitions altogether. So when we're praying, we're really praying, hallowed be thy name, as in heaven, so on earth. Thy kingdom come, as in heaven, so on earth. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Which sort of raises a question. What's it like in heaven? Right? You know, what's it like for God's name to be hallowed in heaven? What's it like for his kingdom to come in heaven? What's it like for his will to be done in heaven? Well, we could speculate. We could, you know, make educated guesses. But we don't have to because there is one book of the Bible that is devoted in its entirety to showing us what it's like in heaven. And what is that? The apocalypse. The last book of the Bible is the one book that basically takes John up to heaven. It's like Sir Simcor to lift up your hearts. In chapter 4, there's an open door through which he passes. And from that point on, everything is going on around him where the angels and the saints and the martyrs and the mother of God and all of these characters are doing what? Well, they're praying for God to be God's name to be sanctified. They're praying for his kingdom to come. They're praying for his will to be done. What's so interesting, though, about those visions in John's apocalypse that describe what it's like in heaven is how I first discovered it. I was still a Protestant. I had been studying the Bible. I had been reading the Fathers. I had begun wondering if the Catholic Church might not be right because in my search for the church that matched that matched the Bible, it just seemed like the Catholic Church was right, you know, like 99 out of 100 times. I'd never gone to Mass, I'd never wanted to go. I always heard that it was like sacrilege, re-crucifying Jesus is what they think they're doing. Of course, it's not what we think, but it's a lot of what outsiders think we're thinking. 
But one day I went into a basement chapel and I sat in the back for a weekday mass at noon just to kind of keep score, to see what it's like in the 21st, you know, to see what it's like today like it was back then. And as the mass began, it struck me almost immediately that I was hearing things that I recognized, but I wasn't sure exactly what. It was so biblical. But then when they came to the words of consecration, I could feel the last doubts just draining out of my mind and my heart, and I was at the edge of the back pew whispering like some doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God, that's you, that isn't bread. By the time they consecrated the chalice, I, I could find myself literally drooling with this holy thirst for his precious blood, and I didn't know why. But a moment later, they all began to chant as if on cue, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they said it again a second time, then a third time, and then they dropped to their knees, and the priest elevated the consecrated host, and he said a fourth time, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's when the light came on. Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, where am I? I'm in the back of the Bible not just in the back of the chapel. In the book of Revelation, where I knew from study, Jesus called Lamb of God more than all the other titles. 28 times in 22 chapters, and it's the technical term from the liturgy that isn't used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. And I never knew why. So as all you Catholics were going forward for Holy Communion, I was going backwards in my Bible and seeing Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. Then the Holy, Holy, Holy. Then the Alleluia. Then the Gloria. The songs and the prayers and the sacrifice of the Lamb in the Mass that I had experienced for the first time showed me what it's like for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because wherever the King is, there is the kingdom. Guess what? Wherever the Eucharist is, there is the King. And so what do we do when we finish the prayer as good Catholics? We pray it like good Protestants. It's the only time we add that ending, right? What do we pray? For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, but only at the end of time. Wait, that's not what we pray. What do we pray? We pray yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now. Right now, here and now. Why? Because you are hollowing your, your home. You are taking those who bear your name and making them saints. You are bringing the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the whole heavenly kingdom to earth. We are doing your will. We are singing the same songs, the same prayers, the same sacrifice that the angels and the saints and the martyrs are doing throughout all of the chapters of the apocalypse. You won't find the word antichrist used a single time in the book of Revelation, nor the word rapture, not even the phrase second coming, but what you find on every page of the apocalypse is the holy, 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 the Lamb of God, the glory, the alleluia, the benediction, all of these things that we hear, we say, we pray, we do, God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, more in the mass, and I'm not making this up. Listen to the catechism. 2770, in the Eucharistic liturgy, the Lord's Prayer reveals its full meaning and its true power. Why? Paragraph 2816, the kingdom of God has been coming ever since the Last Supper, but in the Eucharist, it is in our very midst. 
This is who we are as Catholic Christians. This is what we do in every Mass. This is why we pray. The Our Father, right after the words of consecration and right before Holy Communion, because these petitions are going to be fulfilled in a way that our guardian angels can see, but we can't. And they're just wondering, Lord, when are you going to show them just how real and true and powerful and beautiful that prayer is that they pray like parrots who might recite Polly Wada Cracker? But it's our chance to make up for lost time. And if we ask the Lord to kind of help us do that, it isn't like, you know, what, you, you, you want me to help you pray the Our Father better from this point on? After what you've done in the past? Oh, come on. Now, if we desire for God to increase our faith and to increase our hope and endurance and our love, guess what? What we're desiring didn't originate in our heart, it originated in His. And what we're discovering is what we desire, we desire because he is transplanting these longings in the hearts of his children. This is why we pray what we pray, and this is how we ought to pray what Jesus taught us to pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.